Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at Clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Detlev Beniskowitz, founder and CEO of NextPoint Therapeutics and managing director at MPM Capital. Wonderful to have you on today, Detlev. Hi, Raul. It's really a pleasure to talk to you. So Detlev, to kick us off, talk to us how you initially got interested in biotech, the arc of your career, and how you got to where you are today. Yes, that's quite a long and loaded question, but I'm happy to introduce you and the audience to some of the career steps that I've gone through. I think it's important. I was educated here at MIT in Boston, and I'm a scientist by training. Similar to many other PhD postdocs, I was frustrated with the lab work. And this was in the time when the dot-com boom was really rampant. And I moved to a consulting company to get some business experience and work and consult to biotechs. I worked there for six years at Boston Consulting Group. But the more important steps is afterwards. So afterward, I learned drug development by working for two big pharmaceutical companies, both here in Boston. One is Novartis. We had the pleasure to lead at the end the entire portfolio of pre projects. And secondly, I was part of the oncology leadership at AstraZeneca, at AstraZeneca Oncology Unit, which was located here at Waltham and in Aldenplag, the UK. And I think this is where I really learned drug development. But I knew from the beginning, you know, that it's nice to work in pharma and it's most likely one of the best things to learn because you're seeing so many projects, but it has also its drawbacks. And I was always very entrepreneurial and wanted to make sure that I eventually transitioned to biotech. And I became CEO of Surface Oncology and then transitioned over to be join MPM and found multiple companies within the MPM environment, including Nextpoint, which we will be talking about later. Wonderful. And Detlev, as you reflect back on your early parts of your career in big pharma and now being involved in several early stage high growth biotech companies, what are some of the kind of non-obvious learnings in terms of how to operate a biotech versus how you were thinking about operating models in big pharma? So to boil it down, it comes down, pharma companies are run on the portfolio model. You made a number of bets and you just need to be reasonably successful in those bets. At biotech, you run an individual or two projects and they need to be successful. There's no backup plan. You know, <laughs> you need to put your best foot forward. But a biotech company is designed to go super successful or it can go bust if you chose the wrong technology if you chose the wrong people or not. So those is the key difference. At the big pharma, you really run a portfolio model. As long as two, three projects out of your 10 are successful, you will be fine. Biotech doesn't work that way. It's your first. Maybe the second needs to be successful and, and that drives it successful. Raul, just to give you, I was lucky. I joined AstraZeneca 
I don't know if you remember that it was around 2010-11, AstraZeneca Oncology had 12 years of phase 3 failures. And I was lucky that my boss, Susan Galbraith, you know, I was hired as a young guy to turn around the oncology unit. And that was a similar situation where I learned a lot. It was AstraZeneca was oncology had not had any successes. We were able to really revise a novel strategy, novel projects. And I'm really part of, proud of it as being part of developing two super innovative drugs. Osimertinib, the next generation EGFR inhibitor, and Olaparib, you know, the first PARP inhibitor. Both of those drugs really turned around AstraZeneca. And that was one of part that I've always a soft spot for pharma because you can have impact. But then I moved to biotech because I wanted to have more impact and I didn't want to cut out the bureaucracy. And that's true. And it's fun. And Detlev, you know, if you think back now to your first foray into biotech versus how you think about company creation and running a biotech now, what's evolved in your thinking as it relates to that? The first biotech I took over was Surface Oncology. We had after, I think not even 18 months after founding, we had a deal with a big pharma company with 220 million upfront, which came in in steps, but it's still, we had a pioneer time. It was just the beginning of immune revolution. We had some really novel approaches and it was just about building, building, building. The times have changed. The level of sophistication, which was required in a biotech company, the level of understanding a topic has increased significantly. And as we all know right now, it is a very, very different environment in immune oncology, but also in other areas. Yeah, certainly agree. Before we get into now what you're working on at Next Point, I'd love if you could educate us on the IO landscape through the lens of your eyes and where there are still challenges, but also balancing that with where there's significant opportunity. This is a fantastic question because I think this sets it up. And I just want to lift it up to another level. I think every major innovation undergoes certain phases. There's the initial discovery, and then we have often some very quick successes. For immune oncology, it was a CTLA-4 and then the PD-1 receptors, which were commercially incredibly successful. And I think they have commercial value of 30 to $50 billion in sales, like incredibly successful. And then everybody believes that the next medication is equally easy and equally commercially successful. And then we're realizing, my God, it the rules are a little bit more complicated. And then the clinical success rates go down because we draw from very simplistic views. And I can give you one, like we thought every checkpoint, independent of if you know the ligand or not, is another good clinical target. And we often still don't know the ligands of many of those tags, such as TIM3 and Vista and, and so on. But we thought it's like as simple as PD-1, PD-1. And this is often called the valley of death of innovation. But out of those, you shape novel ideas and you learn about rules. But you need to innovate. And I hope that Next Point is one of the answers out of the understanding what went wrong over the last five years and why so many trials failed in immune oncology. This is 
analogy is actually fairly easy. If you look back in the 80s, 90s, we had initial successes with kinase inhibitors, which was multi-kinase inhibitors like the TKIs. But we often did not have a patient selection strategy with it. Only once we learned which patient group, which biomarker leads us to the right patients, which is basically from, from targeted therapy to precision medicine, we learned and had the clinical successes. And I believe the same thing needs to happen in immune-oncology. We cannot continue to develop medications where we have no idea which patients benefits of them. I'll give you an example. When we hear at MPM pitches, 99 of 100 pitches in I.O. of the following storyline, we have a target and we add it to PD-1 therapy in a CT26 model, maybe MC38 model. And you can show that the tumors, which were reduced by the PD-1 treatment, are further reduced and better. And when you ask, how does this translate into the clinic? It is impossible. They don't know where this mechanism plays a role. And mice are maybe not the right model for immune oncology, are not always the right models. So this is one of the key problems. And Detlef, you mentioned your involvement at MPM. I'm curious from a context switching perspective, how you go from, and what's worked well for you in terms of structuring your days or your weeks to go from you know running a biotech to listening to pitches to sitting on the boards. What's worked well for you in terms of context switching and structuring your own life? So I have two fun jobs. And I really want to emphasize, when people for the first time sit at the board, you learn how board dynamics done. You know, if you have a young upcoming scientist or a manager and moves to the for the first time to a board meeting, it's very difficult to understand the dynamics. The same is true for a lot of biotech. If you understand how VCs things, you know, how you can raise funds, what they're looking for, what dynamics they're looking to, you can be a more effective operator of a biotech company. And this is what I love. I can see it from both parts. I can also make the companies I work better because I understand what most of the VCs look, how they evaluate certain models. And I think that is one of the two parts. But it's just fun to look at innovations, help young teams to come up with ideas, shape their idea, operationalize it. This is the most fun you can have, you know, like the start of a biotech company. I'm enjoying Bar's part, but I'm also enjoying leading a company. So, And to double click on certain aspect of that, you know, there's so much risk in everything that we do in biotech. And oftentimes being a CEO, particularly a CEO at a biotech can be quite a lonely journey. How have you evolved in terms of the way that you operate and lead give, with this undercurrent of there is a lot of risk in everything that we do? I think you're right. There's moments when you are uh, realize the CEO job is can be the loneliest job in the world because you cannot even share certain information. Maybe I can tell two lessons I learned is honesty is the only long-term way. And you need to be honest to yourself what you can defend. But I think you're honest also to your partners. And you need to find the balance that you can even tough messages that you learn to be honest about it and how you see it and how to message it. Anything else that it can be sustained for maybe a short time, but long term, I think is 
being truth to yourself and to your word is, I think, the only path forward. The second lessons I have, hire people unlike you. This is something I only learned over the years is in the beginning, you tend to want to hire people that are like you, that think similarly, maybe you connect easier with. But what I realized on long term, that a diverse team in thinking in every element of the world is other high performing teams. So every of us has certain weaknesses. And if you have somebody who's strengths is where you're weak, you build high-performing teams. And this is something I learned over the years. It's, I'm afraid now hiring somebody like me because I can do that. But I want somebody who's different, who's maybe very process-oriented and I'm more strategic mm. because we keep each other honest. You know, I can lift him up to the strategy level, but he or she keeps us honest on the process levels. So this is what I learned as the second key lesson, Sam. Don't hire yourself or people like you. Hire people that are different and build high-performing teams. And maybe the third lesson is push down responsibilities as much as possible. It is important to hold people accountable, to challenge them, and not micromanage. And in the beginning, that is something <laughs> you want to make it perfect. So you start micromanaging and you need to come to more patience but pushing down responsibilities to the organization is the only way to enable an organization and, again, create a high-performing organization. A lot of those resonate at Lab for me, so thank you for sharing that. Maybe, again, double-clicking on point, as a biotech evolves in your experience, you know, when you're going from three, four, five people to then 30, 40, 50 people, how do you think about how your role is changing and where you should be spending your time? I love the beginning part of founding a company. It is where strategy matters the most and where I have more and more fun building, coming together. In the beginning, it's, as you said, it's much less process-driven and a lot of a more idea-driven, getting things done. And people can make a big difference. You're seeing a big transition when you have 20 to 25 people in your company. You require to build certain processes. You need to move from individual conversation where you can make a decision. Is this the right way going forward to establishing leadership meetings so people are informed to making sure that all the different functions are aligned? And this becomes even more significant if you have 50 people. So it becomes a much more formalized process to lead versus in a small company, it is three people sitting together and saying, it's going to go this direction versus later on, you have to, to build a functional leadership team and the functions and integrate it and a fair process and all things. So it really drastically changes and it requires the CEO completely run on different operational models. It is challenging. I have to say this is growing with the company as a CEO is one of the biggest challenges. Well, Detlev, with that wonderful backdrop now to your career and all the things you're working on. Would love to hear about the work you and your colleagues are pursuing at NextPoint Therapeutics and the founding story and what really led you to start the company. We're quite excited about NextPoint. And you heard the introduction about what we believe is wrong in I.O. We need to know which the patients we're targeting and to come to something we call precision immune oncology. The second point is currently the immune therapies that work 
are focused on PDL1 positive patients. And nine out of 10 medications that are developed, such as Tigit, such as all the adenosine axis, are only aimed to make PD1 responders maybe respond better, respond longer, more durable. So every of the clinical trials that we're seeing are somewhat focused on improving a small patient population, which is between 10 and 30% in most indications. But you imagine like if you a lung cancer patient that is PD1 negative and you're not EGFR positive, your choices are abysmal is really true. They might give you PD-1 because there is nothing else, but it's mostly still chemotherapy in those patients. And the truth is, this is still the majority of the patients. And we believe in most cancers, you might have a growth driver, but you have an immune surveillance mechanism that is upregulated. PD-1 is just one of those mechanisms. The beauty is about the PD-1 axis you have a tumor marker so you can diagnose the patient to get the most benefit of the doubt. We don't utilize it always, but even if we look retrospectively, PD-1 is a fantastic marker to PD-1 response. There are others, but it's, at the end, that's scientifically the most direct marker. So what do the patients do which are PD-1 negative? And this is where Gordon Freeman and Jingjing Zhang, two of our scientific founders, came together. And we independently discovered them working on this topic. And they basically discovered a new inhibitory receptor for a novel checkpoint axis. And the axis we call HHLA2, but in the old literature is often called B7H7. And similar to some of those B7 receptors, and by the way, most of the successful targets right now, PD-1, are in the B7 receptor family. And we discovered the co-inhibitor receptor, which made the biology look now logical. Before, it didn't make any sense. They had only known the B7 receptor and the activating receptor. So both of them independently discovered this novel pathway and deciphered. And the beauty which turned out is that it has a lot of analogies, much more than all the other checkpoints to PD-1, PD-1. And I just name a few. One, like PD-1, it expressed on the tumor-resident antigen-primed T-cell. PD-1 is on the TEM cells, we are on the Tamra cells. So it's on a tumor-resident cells. The second is PD-1, PD-1 uses the PD-1 biomarker to select patients which is very lowly expressed on normal tissue and upregulated on tumor. Our axis, very similar. HHLA2 is very low expressed on normal tissues, but it's highly expressed on a different set of tumors. There's an overlap, but not. So we believe that we can select and target with our axis tumors that are PDL1 negative, but positive are for our biomarker. HHLA2 and target them with our axis. We know that PD1 therapy does not work in those. We have shown that and we have even clinical data. But our axis is basically has the potential for monotherapeutic benefit. And that solves one of the biggest issues right now, which all the IO companies have. They have to run trials 
with PD-1 in the control arm and show that they're better than PD-1. And that's often trials with two, 300 patients. As we go in the PD-1 negative, we believe that we can show monotherapeutic benefit in just patients in a single arm because there's no control needed. There's no responses to PD-1. And that really also simplifies clinical development and innovation. Wonderful. Thank you, Dadab. So it seems like you've been quite productive in the early years at NextPoint. Talk to us about where you are from a team size perspective and also how you think about building out the team at various inflection points. I think I should mention that we're about to enter the clinic with our two lead project. So for us as a biotech company, this is the most exciting time, moving from a preclinical company to actually a clinical stage company. And that comes with, as we discussed before, with gigantic changes in the company. So we were fairly cost-effective, but now we need to build a clinical group, regulatory group, manufacturing, all those elements are building. And we were very happy that we hired just recently our chief medical officer, Helena Gandhi, from Dana-Farber, where she led a clinical unit, and she is tasked to make our lead project successful in the clinic. And we're so happy to have a join. But then also we're building a team around her in the clinical side. We have manufacturing built capabilities with Jamie Strand. We are now reaching over 25, close to 30. And it's those time when you know, the company is transforming very effectively and very rapidly. And it certainly seems like you've been very productive with potentially two INDs being filed this year. Given the current fundraising environment. How is that informing how you think about various different operating models? And then the second part of the question, what advice would you provide others that are in an early stage company, but perhaps haven't seen these cycles as you have? I built them as separate. I think there's two different topics and maybe I can... Sure. One is about the current funding environment, and it might be worth talking to, and what are our replies to this and how we have built the company. Yep. But let me answer the first question is, current environment is difficult. You know, like I think everybody that lives in biotech leadership or is part of biotech leadership realizes this is one of the most difficult times in biotech. This is more difficult than 2007, 8, 9. This is more difficult than 2001. And the IPO market is firmly closed. You know, we're seeing a few S1 filings, but overall, I don't think we have seen really a successful. And that creates a lot of problems. Also, you're seeing now so many companies with valuations of 25 to $100 million that are in the clinic and have clinical projects. So it makes it really, really difficult. I think our crossovers is also really close. So what I've seen is that companies are really trying to ensure that they get to 23, a little bit into 24, and hoping that the environment gets better. We were very fortunate, but maybe that we were able to raise in these difficult times multiple upsized Series B round with next point, and which was multiple times oversubscribed. So we were really happy that we could get this together. And that speaks maybe a little bit on that in this environment, you have to have a differentiated story. I think we had too many stories over the past that are 
me slightly better. And I think that is difficult. We have still a lot of clinical trials and don't know how they will play out. It is really clear that this environment is only enables clearly differentiated ideas to get through. And I think this is what I would encourage. I think it's thinking about the story about how can you differentiate your company your approach to get that necessary funding for the next step. And so Detlev, you know, given that you sit on perhaps both sides of the table in terms of running a biotech, but then your role at MPM also, I'd love to hear your thought on what do you think is the cause of the current macro environment across biotech? And then also, what are you hearing from LPs that invest in the biotech sector? The cause, I think, is fairly simple. Biotech is a capital-intensive business, and the lending cost is really impacting our business. And you saw it once the crisis started, once the interest rate was raised, because we are a capital-intensive business, and it's the easiest, if capital is cheap, to invest in those businesses and to drive returns. You know, this is the typical game you're doing. And this is not a long-term problem. We believe that interest rate eventually will come down again and biotech can develop solid returns. I think the second cause is maybe an overinvestment in certain areas. We're seeing often a lot of similar trials in an area. I might mention how many PD-1s were developed, you know, not all of them can be successful. And there's an overinvestment in certain things, which reduces the clinical success rates. And this is when externals look at this, they're seeing, oh, the external success rates are reduced. But I might argue that it's caused by a lot of me slightly better or me too approaches. This is one of the fundamental causes. And this has direct impact because many of the public companies, their valuation is fairly low, which pushes crossovers. They have to decide if they invest in the company, which is private, which is worth maybe over $100 million versus a company I can buy on the public markets for slightly below $100 million. And that basically makes it really difficult to get crossover and IPO funding successful. And that needs to wash out of the system. And you're seeing more and more of those companies falling, you know, like there was just recently, Jones got acquired, other companies like that too. So I think we still have a solid seed and Series A funding. And this is something which is very positive. We have... LPs that are still excited on the long-term prospects of this industry, but we're pushing to more innovation. We're pushing to clear differentiation. We don't want to be the third, fourth with a similar concept. So that, I think, is the answer. But there is hope, and the hope is that the early biotech company creation is still very solid, and there's capital to fund new companies. And to double click on that point, I think there's a lot more VCs that are now getting involved in company creation, MPM included. What impact do you think that has on the ecosystem longer term and VC company creation or the role of VC company creation as it relates to driving entrepreneurship across biotech? I think there's different VC models. The company creators such as MPM, we living from refining academic ideas and morphing them into a therapeutic idea. So how to target it for a therapy and bring it through the preclinical development into the clinic 
to an early clinical readout. I think that is roughly the model. So we're working with a lot of, for example, we work a lot with Dana Farber, MGH, and some other top scientists to basically help them the idea to put it in a therapeutic concept into a medicine that can be tested in a way in the clinical. And that's, we believe this is the most fun. <laughs> I believe personally, this is the most fun to start companies and make them successful. But there's other ideas. And you're seeing like the crossover or later stage investors, they're more looking at multiple investments and just want to be part of certain companies and helping them to transition, for example, to public market. There's no good and bad, but we need to have both and it needs to be an ecosystem. And, and right now, I think where most of our companies I see, have a problem is the transition to the next stage, not the seed stage, not the series A, but to transition to the B crossover IPO. And But we hope that will change over the next, not in 23, though. <laughs> I think yeah. it will in 24. And what do you think will be the catalyst of that change when we switch over from where we are now to post, let's say, correction? I'd love to hear your thoughts on what will get us there. I personally think, because it's connected to, again, the cost of goods, of capital, once the Fed has indicated that inflation is stable, we don't need to raise further the interest rate, and it might come slightly down and cost of lending will come down. I think that will be a catalyst for not only for biotech, but for technology to the market will get reinvigorated and everything gets swept up with this and then new ideas come and then certain industry will further grow out of this. But I think the market leadership will come from a lot of the high-tech companies, tech companies, which are like right now beaten down the most and biotech including. And I think it's the Fed that, that inflation is controlled and does not further need to raise the, and everybody I think is waiting for that signal. Yeah, certainly agree. Well, Detlev, before we let you run, wanted to ask, you to reflect one more time, and you've already done this wonderfully so far today, but to reflect one more time, and if you were to think back to your younger self, given all of the experiences that you've had over the course of your career, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self? You alerted me that this question might come. I don't have a good answer. At the end, it's the journey. It's really the journey. You just have fun. And most of you, especially if you just up and rising, enjoy it. Mm. Enjoy the journey. You will make mistakes. And it's not about avoiding a mistake, but it's reacting properly to a mistake. Mm. It is about getting up when you did something, and we all have plenty of examples, but this is when you will become better. You did something which maybe was not perfect, react to it, change something. And I think this is my advice to the next generation of leaders is just make mistakes, but respond properly to this. You cannot avoid not making mistakes. And all of us have done plenty. The only other thing is find a balance in life. I have to admit, I found a balance, but slightly later in my life when I was hope. And it's important on long term to find the balance between work private life, because it is a marathon. It is not a race. And that might be the two advices for the upcoming next generation. 
Wonderful. Detlef, I have one follow-on question. So, you know, over the last 15 years or so, you went from starting in a new role at Novartis to now managing director at MPM, sitting on the boards of various companies, founding companies. It's certainly been a rapid ascension. If you were to think about what was that unlock for you as you were up and coming, what comes to mind? Oh, another really important question. I think two things. I'm a risk taker. I have always not shied away of taking on a responsibility. And maybe the unlock is don't underestimate your skills. And once you're often in the situation, you will be able to deal with it. Again, it's about the proper response. And the unlock is I'm a risk taker. I'm looking for challenges in my life. I'm getting slightly easily bored. So I'm always trying to challenge myself. And that, I think, pushed me up mm. because I'm always looking for another challenge. And not only in work, but also in my free time. You know, I like to travel the world, always looking for a new country to visit and meeting new people. And I think that's what your career should be, is about adventure, finding the next opportunity where you feel you are challenged and can learn from it. And mm. that through the path, find don't think when you achieve something, you have, have done it. It's more important to have fun to get there and enjoy it and enjoy the challenge than becoming something. So mm. that's... Mm. Well, Detlev, it was a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks for sharing a small part of your own personal journey to get you to where you are today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Raul. I really enjoyed it too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.